from Kurtco Media. I think conservators who work in a museum will often say, don't run the clock, don't run the steam engine because it may be damaged, because our goal is to preserve something forever. But in a practical sense, a collector doesn't want something that's just sitting on a shelf or sitting in a garage bay. And I think both can happen. That was the voice of Brian Howard, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with Cars That Matter. Welcome to another episode with a very interesting guest today, Brian Howard, Principal Conservator at B.R. Howard & Associates. Brian, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Here, of course, is, in your case, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I'm in Los Angeles, so we're a bit distanced, but very close in terms of our subject at hand, which is Cars That Matter. That is certainly something that you and your team have had a great role in supporting. Brian, you have the neatest job in the world. I saw a great video, the three of you, yourself and your sons, Colin and Braden, recently that was posted by the Historic Vehicle Association. And it was talking about some projects that you'd undertaken and really kind of introduced me to a world that's different from the traditional restoration world that car collectors know about. And so let's start with your title. There's a subtle nuance there of monumental significance conservator versus restorer. And it's not a word that we hear often in the car world. Why don't you take it from the top and explain to us what you do? It's a profession I didn't know existed until I was well along in my process of education. I was a pre-med major, so I was taking a lot of chemistry. Organic chemistry is sort of the course they use to weed people out of the field. Academically, I was doing fine, but I was missing something. I was missing the opportunity to work with my hands. I come from a family of blue-collar workers. My grandfather was a boat builder. My father built houses. So I was always involved in the trades before going on to college. So academically, could do the work, but it wasn't fulfilling. So making a really wise choice, I went into the art department. (laughs) I did that too, and look where it got me. Yeah, I know. It's a pretty strange combination. I met my lovely wife there. She was a sculpture major who went on to become an RN. While she was getting her education, I was working in a boat building company in Connecticut. One day, I had a conversation with the son of the owner. In that conversation, I had an opinion, and it wasn't appreciated, so I was fired on the spot and jumped in my car and turned on NPR. And they were interviewing a gentleman from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And they called him a conservator. He had a degree in chemistry, art, and art history. And I'm thinking, well, after six years, I have two of the three done. Continued working while my wife finished her education and then went on to find out that I could combine all three at the University of Connecticut, is what I did, and then went on to a graduate program at Cooperstown, New York for art conservation. What I came to find out was that Many of the things that I'd done in the process of working in fiberglass, woodworking, all those things were part of what I was going to learn as a conservator. We spent a lot of time learning technology and materials, and the goal being that we can stabilize original pieces of art, not repaint or rebuild or remake, but preserve what was left of an original piece. Restoration is part of what we do, but the restoration that we perform is not to bring a piece back to being brand new, but but to visually pull it together so it looks complete. And I sort of add to that by saying is that often pieces get neglected. Either they weren't considered important for a period of time or they were placed in improper storage. 
and forgotten. So my goal is to bring that piece back to maintain that sense of age, but also stabilize all the original materials and any work that I do to it. The term that we use in conservation is reversibility. Right. And that's hugely key. It really is because I spend a lot of time undoing work that's been done in the past that hasn't been done very well. Look at so many great paintings in history that have suffered from the hands of malignant overpainting and whatnot. The most you can hope for is that it got a big thick coat of varnished and was never touched, but that's rarely the case. Using materials that are analytically distinguishable from the original gives the next generation of conservators the opportunity to undo what I've done. And the selection of materials I use by their nature tend to be reversible. They maintain their solubility or they aren't going to chemically react with what the original piece might have been. It's really half art and it's half science. And that's what makes it so fascinating. You have the opportunity to essentially restore to the extent that it sort of improves the aesthetic continuity of an object. I imagine something like a Greek vase where half of the object may have been lost and we have remaining shards and you would put it back together and possibly infill the missing areas, but not necessarily paint images over them. Exactly. So that we get a sense of the form, but we don't have an overbearing interpretation that takes it out of its historic context. I have a huge admiration for the field. It's so essential in actually preserving the historic artifacts of civilization, whether it's everything from the Lascaux Caves to contemporary art that might be made with some very strange and friable materials. We don't even understand how fugitive they might be. And that's where your job is interesting, because you actually get to invent ways to take care of stuff that we didn't even know existed 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. I think that's probably the most exciting part of what I do. It's constantly solving problems. Because we're really diverse in our practice here, we obviously are developing our conservation for automobiles. This is about my 30th year in the field. Started out early on speaking with a curator who had a carriage collection and then finding somebody who could take care of flaking paint, fractured wood, rusting metal, and deteriorating textiles would have been a team project that was way beyond, I think, financially beyond what most institutions could really take on or afford. That's right. They may have a paintings conservator or works on paper conservator or a textile conservator, but they certainly aren't equipped to undertake these multimedia projects that might expand beyond the scope of their initial collecting program anyway. I foolishly bucked the trend and it's some quirk in my personality that I was told in graduate school I should specialize in a particular material or types of material. And I said, well, I would really would rather be a general practitioner because I thought most museums could probably only afford to have one conservator. And I was married at the time. My wife was living in Connecticut and I was upstate New York. And I knew that as wonderful as she'd been, she's going to expect me to get a job. So I had to find a way to make myself as marketable as I could be. Therefore, I did all the coursework for paintings. I did as much as I could in paper. I certainly worked, didn't do a whole lot of work in textiles, really wanted to be a paintings conservator, but my background in building and the trades and woodworking and cabinetry sort of said, nah, I better head into furniture or something similar. All of that talent would have been wasted too in the two dimensions. But because of that sort of approach that I had and trying to be just practical in what I would do when I finished graduate school made me a prime consideration for working on these carriages, which have all those problems. So for years, I had the opportunity to lecture at the Carriage Association and just show them what conservation could do because traditionally, some of the high-end pieces were being sent back to Europe 
up and being restored there and then come back brand new. Brand new, and they essentially have no relationship to the original object. Others, I imagine, would be shuffled off into old barns on the East Coast, and they're ready for the termite mill by the time you get a hold of them. Their goal was to make something look, again, as new as possible, and so there was no consideration for documenting where the striping was. What really, what was the actual color? Pieces would get stripped, all the structural work would be done, and then they get repainted, usually with automotive paints. So I was at least suggesting if a piece is so far gone that conservation might not be appropriate, that you should at least document to understand what the color was, understand where your striping patterns were placed. So at least if you do a restoration, you could do an accurate restoration. For 20 years, I lectured to them and some people sort of considered it. And I wasn't mandating that every piece get conserved. And I don't do that for anything because it's not my place to place value judgments on objects, but the amount of time and money that would be required to bring it back to that point might not be really sensible to do. Or a piece may be so far gone that there's no way you can salvage original paint. And at that point, you decide to yourself, well, I'm going to restore it to perfect original condition. Right. But if you've done the documentation and close examination, then at least you know what a perfect original condition was. This is something that really wasn't embraced maybe even 30 years ago. Obviously, the whole tinner and philosophy in the car world has changed since then, but that's what makes ours such a very interesting conversation because you were in on the ground floor, not just with your museum object experience, but with these carriages that presented some very specific problems. One of the things I enjoy most is actually getting to have that kind of intimacy, if you will, with the artifact. Normally, we're looking at things that are behind barriers and never to be touched, or they're enough in a barn and never seen to really have a chance to see how these pieces, the construction and the materials and the craftsmanship, it was a real privilege. And I've discovered that even in the pieces that look most decrepit, there's enough information left that if you're really looking carefully, you can begin to see what it was and have hope that it might come back to something close to what it once was. Well, that's really fascinating. I guess that leads me to my next question. What got you into the cars? Because we're going to talk about cars that matter, and clearly the vehicles you restore are some of the most important cars around. Well, I grew up in a home where I think every three years my dad bought a new Ford. So I got to spend a lot of time in car showrooms. Those were the good days, weren't they? (laughs) Absolutely. So I guess cars are always part of my life. My grandfather took an engine out of a Model T and put it in his boat and put the body down over the bank into the swamp. And so I remember as a child going to find that Model T or what was left of it. And then early on, my brother and I, we had a 31 Chevy truck that we tried to begin a restoration. We realized we didn't have the skills or the money. Money was the bigger problem initially. So we loved cars. It's just kind of what we did. And then as I started working on carriages, I started seeing that some of these same principles might be able to be applied. I bought a, I have a 1920 Model T Depot hack. I went to an auction, which is a dangerous thing to do. And I got there late, so I didn't actually get to see the car. I just got to see it as we got to the auction. It was on the screen and I started bidding. And Well, congratulations. The red mist got you a real red herring, I guess. Huh? But it was a barn find. I mean, it was in completely original condition. And I thought, let's see what we can do with it. I mean, essentially, it was very similar to in the carriage world. They're known as Bronson wagons. So if you took a Bronson wagon, took the horse off of it and put the front of a Model T on it, you have the depot hack. About nine, 10 years ago, I bought that and completely took the body off, stabilized some deteriorated wood, fabricated some pieces 
that had missed and some of the battens on the bottom of the door, put it all back together and made it run. And so I can drive it now that I've learned how. But it was really my first attempt to show that a car can be maintained in original condition and still be used. And that's a topic in itself. That's a fascinating topic, the notion of a sympathetic restoration that gets all the mechanicals perfect, but preserves the aesthetic and historic integrity of the object. That's fascinating. I've got an old buddy named Herb Harris, who's a bit of a motorcycle collector. And Herb told me years ago something I never forgot. He said, Robert, there's no such thing as original dirt. Absolutely. In other words, clean the machine, make it as absolutely pristine as you can make it, but don't remove the history. I'm seeing cars that people are afraid to remove dirt. It's true. For one thing, dirt is actually holding moisture, causing more deterioration. And it doesn't really present the vehicle as it would have been last used. It was showing what's happened with 30 or 40 years of neglect. Absolutely true. So right now we have three cars from the Vanderbilt collection of Hyde Park, New York. First off, we thought they were all in original condition. And then obviously the more you get to work on them, you get to realize, no, there's been changes made to all of them. Well, you know, it's funny how 50-year-old paint can all of a sudden look like original paint. It's so old, but you realize the car was painted 30 years into its life. Exactly. And some of these early cars were painted more often because the paint was deteriorating. And especially on people who had the ability to pay for it, they wanted everything perfect. But a large part of what we're going to do is just remove years of grime and grease from the undercarriage. That dirt didn't need to be there. It was deteriorating the components of the automobile. Once it was removed, we could then begin to see what this vehicle really was, how the engineering and the machining that was used was now again unobvious once we looked at it. Under the dirt and grime, it was all lost. I do marvel at some of the recent high-profile auctions where an old Mercedes Gullwing might be rolled out and it's been in the garage and accumulated as much dust as one of King Tut's artifacts. It's amazing how that dirt and grime just excites the greed gland of some bidder who thinks that all of a sudden he's going to pay an extra $200,000 or $300,000 to be the one who gets to literally clean the car for the first time in 40 years. Well, that's a high price to pay for something that, as you say, has to come off to even begin to appreciate what the object is. And also some of the processes that we discussed about consolidation of paint, where you have flaking paint, we don't want to consolidate the dirt. So obviously, if we can carefully clean those areas or at least reduce the dirt, it allows us to get our consolidants in and put the paint back down before we do a final cleaning. We don't leave paintings filthy. I think being able to appreciate the, let's say, a painting or a mural, I mean, obviously, under 100 years of discolored Dharma, Damar varnish, you're not seeing really what it is. There's a cleaning we did here. I think it's on the Crane Simplex that the car looked like it was a yellow ochre. Upon removing the discolored varnish, that car actually had a varnish layer on it. It actually was a medium green. So it changed from yellow back to green because it was just that color shift. And so those are things that we think are important to do. Often when we're working on a piece, I don't want to remove all sense of use. There's evidence of use in almost everything we work on. It's not just decorative art, but a utilitarian piece. And this is going back to my earlier days. But there was a period of time that I was doing domestic architecture restoration in Connecticut. And we were actually dismantling 18th century houses and moving them and putting them back up. That's because of their location along now very busy highways as opposed to some bucolic setting. So we took these houses down, but we had to put stairs back in in some cases where treads were missing. So, okay, there's a whole flight of stairs, three treads missing. Do we put these three treads?
spreads back in and cause wear? Or do we remove all the ones that are worn thin? So it was always trying to find out what was the appropriate approach. But I never wanted to remove the sense of how this house was lived in or how this artifact was used. So maybe just a little concavity to that particular plank would be in order to maintain the continuity of the whole. Right. We had a Detroit Electric that, again, the Park Service had belonged to Thomas Edison. And there was an area that was completely worn on the top of the door. And there's a picture of him standing with his hand in this area. George Washington slept here. I mean, it looks was a natural place. When you open the door, you put your hand and we thought, well, that has to stay. That's evidence how this car was used, where we stood, how we opened the door, how we handled the car. Basically, as I said, I've tried to take the principles of conservation that I applied to the carriages over the past 20 years and sort of begin to introduce that to the car collecting world. We worked on a number of vehicles at the Studebaker Museum. By that connection, we actually then had an opportunity to speak at NAM, North American Auto Museums. I've lectured there a couple different times, just again, introducing conservation to a new group of people. It's hard to convince some people that conservation might be something that should be considered. Understanding that you've got private clients, I'm sure you have some institutional clients and their projects that you might be able to talk about. My question really is, when you meet with them initially, do you kind of have to give them a conservation 101 course to get them to really appreciate and understand what the strategic objective of the project should be? I think it's easier to explain and justify conservation to my institutional clients because many of them are going for grants, IMLS or other granting institutions. So in fact, there are projects that in some cases may have been better served by restoration that could never get funded because the granting institutions have this requirement for conservation. So as a conservator, they're looking for me to explain what this project is going to be and how they can find a funding source. Outside the museum world, I think some of the most interesting cars are actually in the hands of private clients. And I think traditionally, it's always the approach is either you do nothing or it's going to be fully restored. I don't know if that's always the best choice. Either case, I was looking at a 53 Hudson Hornet. What a beautiful car. What a great body on that car. This interior had this purple and blue checked interior fabric. It couldn't be duplicated. Like some of those wonderful fabric interiors in the French Voissons and cars from the Deco period that to reproduce those fabrics would require an act of God. Right. But we have a textile conservator. We're able to save that because the restoration could never really, if it was gone or it was damaged and not reused, it couldn't actually be an accurate restoration. It would be, we'd be changing it to make sure we could complete the project. So I think there's reasons why sometimes some vehicles shouldn't be restored. Also, they become documents. If there's two or three left of a particular vehicle and it's completely gone through and all deteriorated materials are removed and everything is made brand new, you've really lost what it once was. There always needs to be a reference specimen. That's what I've been hammering the carriage world about for years. It's not that I'm trying to drum up business. I'm just trying to say, you're losing history. Every time a restoration is done, you're losing something. Yeah, you're going to have a beautiful end product, but you've lost that sense of where it fit in the timeline of that particular vehicle or of the industry in general. An object's only original once. I know of a collection. I've not worked on it. I've seen a collection of very important automobiles with paint falling off of them. It's in a museum setting and the paint's coming off. And my son, Colin, he asked the question of the docent. What are you going to do with these cars? I mean, the paint's just falling. We could see it on the ground under the car. And they said, well, there's nothing we can do. We're just trying to get the word out. There is something you can do. That's really interesting, Brian. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back in just a moment. Welcome to Life Done Better. 
Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. We're back with Brian Howard. Brian, let's switch topics up a little. I've had a chance to peruse your website and see a couple of the videos that the Historic Vehicle Association did. They're really wonderfully illuminating, and I would urge any of our listeners to have a closer look. There is one project that you did of a vehicle that is in the Historic Vehicle Association archives, a part of their collection, and it is a rather remarkable and dilapidated Volkswagen bus. Can you talk about that project, explain what it meant, how significant it was as a part of American history, and some of the challenges of actually conserving it? It was a challenge. You should be speaking with Colin and Braden because that really became their project. First thing we had to do is figure out how to get active biological growth off the side of this thing. You know, it's been sitting outside for 30 years, I guess. So we had to get the biological growth off the side of the vehicle because we couldn't scrub it because we'd be losing paint. So we set up this elaborate spraying system with a biocide, and that alone was an interesting problem-solving meeting we had. That's where your chemistry came in. Yeah, absolutely. We wanted to take care of that problem but not cause other problems. Problems. I love the bus because I had one. Of course, it caught on fire and burned up when I was in graduate school. So I had this <laughs> intimate connection to Volkswagen bus. They had a way of doing that, didn't they? But just the history. There was a piece that had served as such an important function in South Carolina, educating a population and bringing him to the point where they could meet the standards at that time of being able to vote. And it was a privilege. We should put in context for our listeners that it was used in the South as a part of the freedom campaign, as it were. That's right. The civil rights movement, there were literacy tests. And I think it was not just that, but it was getting these young people the opportunity to move ahead in their lives. And this family used this bus to transport students, and they did it just out of their love for their community. So this piece had been very important, and it served its purpose, stopped running, but they never got rid of it. And it's just something that they obviously had to keep. I wasn't on the mall. Colin and Braden were there, and they got to meet the children of the owners of this bus. And they were just thrilled to have somebody cared enough to want to preserve it. And yet, they didn't want it to be brand new. They wanted it to show that, yes, it had a serviceable life, and then it sat neglected, but it still was important. And we had that opportunity to you know, stabilize corrosion, stabilize paint. We did some infrared photography, and we found that the original lettering is still under the last layer of overpaint. Is that right? We're hoping that removal of the overpaint may not be practical, but we know exactly where the lettering is with our images that we have. We're hoping to be able to do some sort of a decal or reversible way of sort of putting the Citizens Committee back on the side of the bus. The rear liftgate is in the Smithsonian African American Museum. So it's not on the bus. And I know HVA was trying to find a way to join them back together. I think the politics right now, I'm not sure how that's all going to happen. So we've talked about coming up with a liftgate that we could put back on and sort of blend in. It's like when a Netherlandish triptych is missing a couple of the wings of the panels because they're in one German museum and the other one is in an Italian museum. The other one's in the National 
National Gallery. How do you get all these things back together? What a remarkable project that must have been. And uh, again, something that would have been completely lost had it been bright and shiny like so many of the vehicles. It would have lost its character. And there's still work to be done. We got it to the point where it's stable. HVA created an interior mount. I think the front door was falling off. So they did some structural work there that sort of made our job a little easier. When they brought it to us, at least all the parts were now attached. That made life a little easier for us. That doesn't always happen in your line of work, I imagine. Sometimes you get a big old box of stuff and you've got to figure out how it bolts back together. We have one of those that just came in. We have a steam locomotive, small steam locomotive from Michigan that was used in the mining industry. We got a box of parts and we figured out that most of the parts we received actually have nothing to do with the steam engine, but they weighed a lot. (laughs) You say small steam engine, that's like saying a small elephant. I imagine even at their most diminutive, a steam locomotive has got to be one hell of an animal. Yeah, it's about 12,000 pounds, but we've managed to get it into one of our bays. Obviously, there's a lot of mechanical restoration that goes into your work as well as aesthetic and structural. I know your sons work with you. Why don't you tell us about your operation and at what point you decide, oh, we're going to bring in an expert in thus and such? We started out in my garage. I worked for the state of Pennsylvania. I worked for the Museum Commission and my graduate program brought me to Pennsylvania, brought me to Carlisle. I didn't know also it was sort of a car mecca in and of itself, but I was here anyhow, so that kind of was convenient. We had a very small studio because I was working on small artifacts part-time as I worked for the state. After about 12 years, the state of Pennsylvania, after spending a lot of money building a conservation facility, decided they were going to outsource. And I had the good fortune of being in the right place at the right time, and they got to outsource to me. So that's how I really started. Well, it's half-jokingly, but my older son, Braden, I think he was challenged as a young driver. He ended up becoming indentured in my shop by having to work to pay off the dented fender on the pickup truck or whatever. (laughs) I love it. Henry Ford's company store. (laughs) So Braden was indentured. He never did get a paycheck. He just got a new fender or whatever. As he got older, he worked outside of our business for a while and then came in as I needed more help. And then he encouraged me to build a bigger studio. So we moved to a different location, built a 2,500 square foot, which I thought was the biggest studio I'd ever need in my life. And also it was an investment that I never did see any return on other than I got to work there for 10 years. About five years ago, he said, you know, we need a bigger studio. At that point, Colin was at McPherson, so he wasn't there, but we had two other, another conservator and Braden and I, there were three of us. And he said, well, I saw this great property. It's still in Carlisle. It's a farm. It's got this huge barn. There are two houses on the property. So we now have this 18,000 square feet. So as that time we grew, we have two other conservators, Carol Reed, who does our textiles, Scott Cober, who's an objects conservator trained in England. We have Braden, who has been working with me. It's a degree in history, but has been worked with me for about 20 years. And Colin now went through McPherson and he's back. Jolene, my wife, who was a nurse, and then we begged her to retire. And so she's running the business. Well, what a great family affair. And uh, along with the help from some colleagues who are obviously a part of the family too. That is really a great story. Your question was about bringing people in. And we do a lot of different projects. Right now we have a blacksmith that's working with us where we're doing a project for the Arlington National Center. So this isn't car related, but it's part of what we do. So we have a blacksmith and we certainly have had mechanics where it's helped us with issues. We've had engines that had to be rebuilt, which is not our expertise. Many of the museum pieces, they're static. Being fully operational is not really what their focus is. For us, it becomes down to the interiors and the surfaces and stabilizing and proving generally how they look. Although I guess there might be some modicum of satisfaction in knowing that an object can actually run or operate as well if it had to be called on to do that. I'm not an advocate for something never to be used. 
I think conservators who work in a museum will often say, don't run the clock, don't run the steam engine because it may be damaged because our goal is to preserve something forever. But in a practical sense, a collector doesn't want something that's just sitting on a shelf or sitting in a garage bay. And I think both can happen. We've talked about putting in temporary seats, take out the driver's seat. So we're not going to destroy the leather if it's fragile or friable. So we'll fab up a seat that can be used so the car can be driven without damaging at least original components. So there's a lot of things that can be accomplished, but it's thinking outside the box, finding ways to do something that typically isn't done. As a conservator, it's not my place to tell someone what to do. We're an interesting group of people. I'm thankful for my roots, which tend to be, as I said, they're blue collar and we've had to be practical and we had to make things work within a budget. I only offer suggestions and thoughts why something might be problematic or what you might want to think about. The person who owns it has the right to do with it whatever they please. I hope to be a resource rather than a source of irritation. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic gonna read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dreams. fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the one The beauty of rock climbing, climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. We're back with Brian Howard. Brian, talk about the AIC, the American Institute of Conservators, and what the guidelines mean and how they might help your endeavor to promote standards within the field. Well, the American Institute for Conservation is our national organization. I think there are about 3,000 members. I'm guessing at this point, approximately half, maybe two-thirds are graduate-trained conservators. AIC has a code of ethics, and the code of ethics essentially What's required in a project, how we approach what we do, is that there's an expectation of full documentation, both written and photographic documentation before any treatment begins. Also, consultation with the curatorial staff, if one does exist. Then also, the principles of reversibility are very important in terms of the materials we use to do our work. So if we're going to be doing retouching or in-painting, we use an in-painting palette that has a medium that can be reversed with certain solvents that will not damage the original or underlying structure. Any repairs that be made, they should be distinguishable from from the original, either by marking a replacement part or putting in some sort of fluorescent marker. Just having understand that we can determine what's original and what's been done. We've really struggled. I really think that, and the AIC has debated this for years about certification. We never seem to get to the point where that gets accomplished. I live in two worlds, so I'm a little conflicted. I probably would never have gotten into the graduate program now. 30 years ago in the mid-80s, I was somewhat of an anomaly even then. There were three or four of us who got in that year and the various programs who came out of more of a trades background. I mean, academically, we had all that completed, but we worked for a few years doing something else. Right now, the academic requirements are so difficult to meet, and there's so many incredibly qualified applicants who have all the academic 
credentials that one could ever hope for and more. Most are coming in with at least one master's already behind them before they apply to a program in conservation. But having that being said, I think so many years have been spent in academic training that the hands-on training in whatever field it might be, I think is somewhat reduced. They take 10 students per year per program. There's three or four programs in the country. So at any given time, we're going to be dumping 30 more people back into the field of conservation. It's difficult in that most institutions at this point usually have budget reduction, especially now with COVID, everything is being impacted. I have been trying to, you know, I've had the need to hire folks. And typically, large industrial artifacts is not something that really sort of falls within the purview of conservation programs. Finding somebody who's either interested in this type of material or actually has any experience outside of academia has been difficult. So I don't think I really answered you about AIC. It's an important organization. In the public eye, I wish people knew we existed. People know about restoration. They don't really know what conservation is. I think we could do better in public relations in that area. The organization has been there and has been supportive and certainly has pushed and been an advocate for those principles that I spoke of. I wish they had gone further with accreditation because I think there's just different skill levels. And I think that gives uh, those of us in the field a little more credibility. But there is a inherent schism between the person who comes up through an apprentice program and those who've gone through graduate training. I don't think it's a lack of mutual respect, but I think there's a fear. I think there's a fear on the part of the non-graduate trained conservator that this certification is going to basically exclude them. And since we have at least half to third of our organization non-graduate trained, it's hard to get a vote to say, let's go with certification. There are some other privately funded institutions like the Revs Institute and so forth, Collier's operation down in Florida, who have made an effort to promote and respect the same philosophies that you and professional conservators employ. I'm wondering if you've had a chance to work with other organizations on some interesting projects and what some of those most interesting projects might have been. I can't give much information because we don't have it yet, but there's a project coming in. It's a very early Indian motorcycle that's essentially untouched. And it's coming to us because Miles Collier recommended us, which I didn't even know he knew us. They recommended that the owner bring it to us. So that's coming next week and definitely wants conservation, not restoration. I feel like at least the word's getting out that conservation is an option to be considered. And that's all I've tried to do. We can't do every project, but we do want to have the opportunity to at least be an advocate for it. I want to be the advocate for conservation. That's all I want to do in the car collecting world. Let them know that maybe you have a car that's just too important or too unique or too unusual to just let that information or that originality be lost. If conservation can help in any way, just consider that first. I have to ask you, Brian, is there a dream project out there, whether it's a vehicle or something else? Is there something you'd like to have forklifted into your studio? I've lived the dream, really. I'm a guy from a little tiny fishing village in New Brunswick, Canada. I've got to go to institutions that I didn't even know existed when I was younger, and I certainly didn't imagine I would be allowed to be involved in those projects. I love every project we've done. Some have driven me crazy, I'll give you that, but we worked on Abraham Lincoln's carriage that took him to Ford's theater. I've got to work on Udon's sculpture at the Virginia Capitol. I've worked in the U.S. Senate. I mean, never in my wildest dreams did I think I would ever get to do that. I don't think there's a project that's out there that I just can't wait to have the chance to work on. I'm just amazed that I've got to work on what I've already worked on. 
As regards your personal collection, as it were, you'd mentioned a great Model T hack. Are there any other cars in your garage? There's a 63 E100 pickup that's rust-free. That's where we're hoping to get that done someday. I have a 1947 Dodge pickup truck that I restored to get Christmas trees and pumpkins with my children. And by the time I got it done, they were too old to even want to ride with me, let alone go get pumpkins. Sounds like you're a pickup truck guy. Like the trucks. And then I have a 56 Chevy Nomad that my marriage hinges upon (laughs) what I do with it. That's a great car. It's a great car. I bought it a number of years ago when I had a lot less knowledge than I have now. It looked good. I went down to Alabama and bought it and brought it back and then started looking at it. It's a little rougher than I had thought. I wanted to make it a car that I was going to drive. So I was going to do a resto mod with it. I was going to put a Corvette engine in it and change the suspension. And I've done all that. And I actually, I had that go out to a shop. I learned some valuable lessons. One is I should listen to my wife more often because she really <laughs> pegged this guy as somewhat shady. And I just expect people to be, if they say they're going to do something, I foolishly believe that they're going to. I try to live that way. So anyhow, this guy took us for a very long and expensive ride for a car that's half done. And I had to go repo my own car from the shop. So I took my two boys and another big guy and we showed up with a rollback and took it out of the shop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's now covered over in my barn and don't usually mention that car because joe knows how much it cost us there you go what color are you going to paint the nomad two-tone or one tone i'm going to go with original colors it's going to be basically the orange and then the white that's a great look this may be turned over to one of my sons it may never be my project well sometimes these projects do have anniversaries in the shop legacies legacy we all need a legacy project well right it sounds like you've got quite a legacy you've had a hand in bringing so many important objects back to life some of them with four wheels whether they're artillery wheels or pneumatic tires on steel rims. You've had a great hand in bringing a lot of really important vehicles back to life. And it's been a great pleasure to speak with you. Look forward to having you back on the program and talking about what great new projects roll through the door over the course of the next year. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Brian Howard, Principal Conservator of B.R. Howard & Associates, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.